Welcome to We Shadows, the podcast about design and technical theater in the Twin Cities. I'm your announcer, Anita Kelling. In this episode, Rachel Lanto sat down with scenic designer Erica Zaffirano. Together, they explore the passion, sense of adventure, and fearlessness that has accompanied Erica throughout her successful multi-decade career. This conversation took place on October 24, 2020. Erica, I'm trying to remember the very first time I met you, and I it was either I think it was Medora, North Dakota, was the first time I, I met you. I think so too. I'm pretty because sure. then we worked at stages afterwards, right? Together? Right, literally yeah. right after that. Uh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And, um, and you came into a really tough situation and did wonderfully. I thought thank wonderfully. You. I appreciate <laughs> that. Sincerely. Always cheerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, Lisa and Anita and I, um, have been talking for the last, like over the summer about this podcast idea that Lisa and Anita both kind of had the sparks of ideas about, and I thought that was really cool. I really wanted to be involved in that. And, um, and as we were talking about it, um, I was really interested in the idea of, um, you know, uh, or Lisa brought up. I want to feature voices of people who like, you know, I haven't heard from before. Like I want to get to know the community. And I just was like, that. yeah, I mean, especially in a time when we're all so isolated from each other. Um, and Liza is also a teacher. And so she wants to, you know, be able to point her students in the direction of like, here's some people who are amazing and, and work here in the Twin Cities. Um, you know, this community is really cool and you should, these are people you should know about. Mm-hmm. So as we were looking through, you know, um, kind of who's every single person you know in the industry, look through your Facebooks, <laughs> look through your contacts, look through your email, um, you know, what kind of people do we know? And um, I just remember how, uh, I've heard other people talk about kind of like the 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 spectrum of work that you have. And, um, you know, in my own experience with you, just like hearing sort of like tidbits of stories. And I'm like, I've never really heard Erica's <laughs> whole story. And <laughs> so I just would love to, you know, I, I guess that's why I was particularly interested in hearing from you um, as a set designer and as another, you know, female in the field. So so yeah, um, without further ado, oh. I guess. <laughs> well, I'm flattered. I am flattered. I gotta say, but when you've been alive as long as I have, there are lots of stories. Everybody has stories. <laughs> yeah, so. I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of sent you that initial list of questions, um, mm-hmm. and the first one I at the top of the list was, "What's something unique about yourself?" and you gave me three really interesting things about yourself. So uh, tell me, Erica, what are those interesting things about yourself? I can't remember what I told you. Can you? I can't remember. You told me that you have a third degree in as a black belt. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it all is qualified. It's an American black belt. So, so yeah, yeah. I took a. I I first started martial arts as a high school 
in high school with my brother. We did judo. And um, then when I lived in Los Angeles, I was often in kind of the bad part of L.A., and I thought, I've got to make myself feel better somehow. And so I found this um, kind of a community college adjunct to uh, 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 courses in uh, Shotokan karate. So I got involved and I loved it. So when I eventually moved back to the, when I moved to the Twin Cities um, and I had two little boys, I figured that martial arts is good for everybody. And they were very shy. And I thought I'd start them in a martial arts program like, I had a hard time just sitting back and watching. So <laughs> before I knew it, I was involved and just kind of worked up through the ranks. And and uh, so, yeah, so I, I'm a third degree black belt for whatever good, you know, you, you know, it's, it's kind of silly. I mean, the, the belts are, uh, you become a black belt in the traditional mode by how long you've owned the belt and worked out because eventually the belt goes from white to brown because of your hands and sweat to black eventually if you're a practitioner and that's how that system started so <laughs> so yeah i also wear a brown belt to work so you know <laughs> usually it's brown <laughs> yeah so there's that but it made me feel stronger it kind of it, it gave it empowered me as a woman in a bad area in los angeles um i was the only woman in the class and and after class you know you kind of go out with this swagger that you could walking down the streets of LA with a swagger, like, take me on, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty silly, but whatever. <laughs> so that was one. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple <laughs> others, but you actually, that's a great kind of lead into um, another question that I had. Um, you, you also mentioned that you didn't want to raise your kids in the smog of LA. Um, mm -hmm. So something we, you know, are super interested in is why did you pick the Twin Cities as your home base? Um, so this kind of just, I guess, gets into like the bulk of your story. Like, why did you get into theater? And then also, you chose specifically to move from LA to, you know, I don't know if it was exactly mm -hmm. the Twin Cities at the time, but I'd just love to hear about what that story was. Well, if I, if you go way back into childhood, my, my best friend's mother, <laughs> my best friend's mother was a Swiss puppeteer. So that's how I got started in the arts to begin with, working with my best friend and her mom. And we did and we puppeteered in Iowa. Um, so from from there, when I went to college, I didn't have much to do with theater at the time. I was more into television and um, but I got involved as an actress in a couple of shows and in a mime troupe. And it was really nice because as an introvert, I'm basically an introvert. Um, you uh, I didn't have to talk. So just use your body for physical, you know, uh, expression. So I, I did that for a while. And then when I graduated from undergraduate school, my head professor started, he decided to start this theater in Iowa called the Old Creamery Theater Company. And it was in a town of 350 people. We were the hippies coming in at that time and overpowering this theater, this, this, this place. And, um, we did everything. We did bus and truck touring. And for the first half year, we didn't have a salary. We got no money. We were on food stamps. And uh, the first check for a week's worth was $50, I think, in the January after we had all moved there. Um, all he promised us is that we'd have a, a shelter and uh, food in our stomachs. So, so it went from there then 
to um, doing summer stock out in Vermont and going down to the Virgin Islands, starting a performing arts school down there. Uh, I had gotten married at that point to an, my, an actor, and um, we did that. And we went back to Vermont, did some more summer stock. And then he said, you know, it's not good if there are two actors in the same family. So maybe you should do something in technical theater, <laughs> which actually worked for me because he was a much better actor than I. And although I loved being on stage, I was really happy exploring the backstage and building and painting. And it opened up a whole new world. So... We went from, I took my GREs down in Puerto Rico and we moved to Seattle and I got my master's there. And from there, I worked at um, uh, my first, they didn't let me in. I came in as a fifth year student because I had no portfolio, nothing. I was an actress. I had no art portfolio. So um, they wanted to see how well I did as well that. I was in for as a fifth year student for six months and I said, I can't afford this. You can decide if you want me or not. And I got, I was, I lucked into an assistant design job. If you get that, I do nothing. Now I knew nothing. Assistant design job at the Seattle Repertory Theater, which is like the Guthrie, it's the big repertory theater on the West Coast um, in, in Washington. And some of my professors from the school actually designed at the Seattle Rep. Well, um, they admitted me into the program, and um, oh, I don't know if I should just launch into this. Uh, when I so, <laughs> so uh, I was doing really well that first year, and then we have a portfolio review at the end of the first year in the MFA program, and all of a sudden my grades had plummeted. So I went from a three point eight to a one point two five, and I thought what's that? It wasn't based on any tests. It was just based based on my portfolio review. My father, uh, who was a, was a physicist down in Iowa, was also the dean of graduate students there. So I called him up and I said, what can I do? They're trying to kick me out of the program. Turns out that my, this is the first time I had experienced chauvinism really in a big way, but they had told, they, my, the major professor who kind of spearheaded this change in my grade told me that I could be a, a costumer or I could be a lighting designer. I should not think about being a set designer because women just are not set designers. So make a kind of abbreviate all of this. Um, I did as my father told me and got everybody to sign this document saying, I think this is unjust. I don't understand where this is coming from, except for one of my best friends in graduate school. And he was the darling of the school. So he didn't feel he could sign that. But I got through that program it basically in two years and then just coming back to do my thesis and working at the rep in between the time. So, so, um, it worked out pretty well because I wasn't I wasn't fond of school in particular anyway, <laughs> so I got out of there a little early and and it, and it worked and then and then my actor husband and I stayed in um, Seattle for a number of years and worked in all the theaters and um, he wanted to either go to New York or Los Angeles. I have a friend who is a soap opera star and they were moving to uh, New York because because the soap opera was out there. So they said, why don't you come and house sit in our apartment in, in LA? And we said, oh, perfect. Because I, I just, I thought I might wither and die in, in New York because I'm more of a country person. So we moved to LA and that's how that saga started. 
Well, in L.A., it's uh, there's a lot of nepotism, granted, and I had knew not, nobody really um, except I, I did. So I did work at PCPA, which is Pacific Conservatory of Performing Arts in um, Santa Maria. I was there for two summers as a head scenic um, because that is a skill I learned while I was at the when they said I was an assistant designer at the rep. I was actually a scenic artist, so I was painting, but I had a grandiose title. So I met a lot of designers, a great, a great summer stock, a great place to meet designers up and down the West Coast, actors, well-known actors on the West Coast. And because of that, I was acquainted, I made the acquaintance of the, he was the head of the Scenic Artist Union in Los Angeles, a fellow named Marvin DeCellis. Um, and he, he, he was working for a studio in, in LA and, um, we had just moved down. We had literally $76 in our pocket and in our bank account. And um, he's, he said, well, you come in, uh, come in for a, a day. We'll see how it goes. And, you know, he's, he was old school. He, he called me babe. Hey, babe, you know, we'll try you. So the next day, I mean, I worked the first day. He said, well, come back the next day. And then after the first week, he said, you know, you want to stay? Cause they, and what was interesting is I'm sure he talked with all the guys in the shop and said, try and freak her out, you know, do something to, to eat. So, so, um, you know, they talked the way guys and old school guys and scene shops used to talk and it didn't phase me. And I really liked the guys. So I quickly got in the scenic artist union there <laughs> And then I started to get commercials and, you know, did, did some art direction. And finally, um, it was about, I was there for, I think, nine years. And um, I was the art director on a television show called Totally Hidden Video, which is, it was a kind of a, a Alan Fund from Candid Camera tried suing us because it was the same kind of deal, but we used three video cameras and they used only one camera and so basically, I uh, I had three crews: one in um, San Francisco, one in Seattle, and one in Los Angeles. I uh, it, during this time, my first husband and I divorced. We're still good friends, by the way, but <laughs> we divorced, and um, I then uh, later um, married a, a man who uh, we had children, and we found out we were pregnant when I was doing the show. And my doctor said, you know. Um, shouldn't be on the plane that much going back and forth, you know, as an art director. So after hiatus, we had a discussion and we decided, okay, we've got to move away from smoggy LA because I, I was a workaholic there. You can't help but be, I mean, there was so much work coming my way and um, I just, I knew I wouldn't stop. And why do you have kids if you can't figure that out for me? This is my, my decision. So we moved to Minneapolis because we came to visit my family who was in Iowa. And then I had two sisters living up here in the Twin Cities. And one sister said, I have a friend who's a, a realtor. Why don't you just talk with him? So, <laughs> so he showed us our house that we're in now. And, um, he, and, and we decided we saw it one time, drove back to LA. We made the deal over the phone and we were paying the mortgage was the same as my bungalow in North Hollywood. So it was a no brainer. <laughs> so that's how I got here. <laughs> but again, I didn't know anybody in the twin cities, you know, except my sister. So it's that process. It's, you know, if it, it would have been a bit easier had I known a few people or been able to network faster, but 
still, I think at that time, there are very few female set designers. And uh, we sure have grown at Legion now, certainly. And in fact, Vicki Smith from Penumbra, she, she graduated from the University of Washington a couple years after I did. So after I, after I graduated as basically, um, I think I was the first woman at the University of Washington to get my MFA. Um, there was another, another woman in the next year, and then Vicki and her crew came in the next following year. So whew, that's that. <laughs> Do you mind if I ask what year that was? Oh, <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was in the 80s. It okay. was in the 80s before you were even born. <laughs> I don't remember the year. I got to say it was that far back. I would say it was 82 is what I get. I think it was 82. I think that's right. Wow. Right in that time frame. Were you alive yet? No. Nope. <laughs> I didn't think so. Oh, no. No, I didn't think so. No, it's just so, it's so interesting for me to, like, I don't know much about, you know, my predecessors and especially in the arts. So I'm like, oh, like it wasn't i mean mm -hmm. the 80s wasn't that it wasn't easy <laughs> yeah but so no no know. it it wasn't that easy for sure i mean we were that we just um it was a we were blaze i don't it's very odd to me to think i know so many talented women now in the tech end that it, it's so hard to imagine that that was not always the way it was i mean even as stage managers, there were they were mostly men, as I recall, even back in the day. So, I guess we were so busy birthing babies, and taking care of the little husband. I don't know, oh, was, but luckily, both of my partners, both of my husbands, were you know were right behind me and pushing me and saying, "You do this, yeah, you do this." So, because it has to be a passion, because you know we don't get paid enough for it not to be a passion. Yeah. So. I so, was gonna and the only go ahead no go ahead go ahead I was just thinking about uh you know as you were talking about sort of your starting out and later on you said ah oh, we had like 75 bucks in our pocket or whatever it's so mm -hmm. fascinating to me to hear about like how passionate you were where you were like willing to go there <laughs> well uh, well, you know, my 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 husband. Uh, it, one thing that kind of uh, put a little wrench in the system when we got to L.A. was that I was always working. It's much harder as an actor. I mean, he he got commercials. He was in Cujo. He did some things, but it was much harder for him to find work. And I was always gone. I was always well, and and mostly as a scenic artist. I mean, you work as a designer or an art director or a production designer occasionally those jobs come along, but it's not every time, but the bread and butter. And I worked in a specialty prop house, Jack Shafton's prop house too. And it's just that if you're willing to learn and willing to learn new stuff all the time, because there's always new stuff to learn, you'll never, I mean, look at you, you're a stage manager. You're also a stage hand. You do it all too. I mean, that's what we learn to do. So, um, but I think some people kind of shut shut things off and, and imagine themselves to be a certain thing, certain kind of person that their career is going to be in a certain direction. And you've got to be malleable, I think, if, if you want to survive and you got to realize what your, what the major goal is. If you want to become wealthy, then shoot, you should be to LA because that's where the money is. for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know, again, with, with that $76 uh, thing in there, 75, $76 in the, bank account um 
what was interesting is I actually gotten on my first game show when we had that much money in the bank and I won. So it was great. So, <laughs> so it's just from feast to, I mean, famine to feast almost, you know, it's so odd. It's just an odd series of events, but it's an adventure. Life yeah, is an adventure. Absolutely. You know? I think it's really cool though, that you also like at some point you were like, I know what I want and what I want is to have kids that are not mm -hmm. raised in the smog and you, you know, <laughs> moved across the country and at some point we're able to put down, you know, I think something that I find uh, currently in the struggle is that a lot of people uh, struggle with finding like, um, no, this is what I want. You know, I'm not just going to let somebody like kind of tell me what my path looks like. So I just <laughs> think that's really cool that you like... <laughs> This is what I want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because if you let other people tell you what you want, then you're not going to be happy. And um, it also, you know, you, as you as you've already found out, you need backbone to work in the theater. You really do, because uh, it's not something that is generally handed to you. And um, I think that it 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 it's it makes that's that's one thing that makes it so intriguing and exciting, because I've never I, I will I think there was one job that I took as a temporary uh, a temporary job when I first moved to LA before I knew anybody for about a week I worked for an agency that for Mack truck and they I was filing things or something like that and that's the only time I have not worked in the theater I feel my very fortunate now do I have a huge house no I really don't I have a little tiny house but do you need a large house mm, maybe some people do but then you have to clean it. So, <laughs> so, so I, I just think, you know, if you're going to choose this um, as an occupation, you better be an adventurer. You know, you better, you better just go for whatever the gold is. And, and the gold for me is being happy. I can't, there's very rare that I wake up in the morning and say, oh, I have to go to work today. I rarely have ever done that ever, you know, even if it's going to be backbreaking work, it's still something that I look, it sounds so Pollyannish. Um, I was called goody two shoes in high school. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it was, it was, it is, um, there's something to be said for enjoying what you do in life. And there are people who are nurses who love what they do and people who are doctors and garbage men and, you know, as long as you love what you do, it doesn't make any difference, really, what you do. It's yeah. got to, you got to fill your own soul because, you know, COVID comes along and and kicks you in the butt and you just, you know, and then you guys formed this, decided to do these podcasts, which is just great. It's, it's innovation. You've gotten, it's another innovation. So I love what you yeah. say about you have to be an adventurer and kind of choosing. I think that's something that I really admire about you in general is that you have this spirit oh. of, you know, uh, excitement and passion for what you do. And it's, you know, there's oh. rarely when I see you, um, you know, like dragging your feet about it. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, well, you know, that one thing too, Rachel, is that in this occupation, it's such an inclusive occupation that there are so many different kinds of people that we work with. And it's fascinating. It's like a microcosm of the whole world in my occupation. And how can you possibly be bored with that? And how can you possibly not look forward to meeting the next person that you 
should have always known. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's that. What did you, um, as you moved to the Twin Cities, you know, like we mm-hmm. said, you know, you had decided you just didn't want to have a family in L.A. Um, how did you make your way? How did you sort of adventure into this particular place? What did that look like for you? You, you mean when I was here in Minneapolis? Yeah. Here in the, you mean when I make Yeah. Like how did your, okay. I don't know, career or oh. life unfold there? So for the first year I had twins and so, and that's really time consuming. And I had made so much money in Los Angeles that for the first year I put down payment on the house. I had just bought a new Azuzu Trooper that we brought across to LA. My husband did not have to work for half a year. So I had help. So the two of us were really invested in these babies and, um, he then got work at um, um, uh, an industrial uh, display company, a uh, um, trade show display company. And he told them what I did for a living. And I ended up doing a lot of scenic work for them, painting and um, all that. So, uh, so that was my first employment here. And then... Um, I had worked, uh, I had been uh, a professor for, um, down at Iowa State. When I was in Los Angeles, they pulled me to Iowa State because somebody was on, um, went on sabbatical. So for half a year, I was there. And while I was there, there was a fellow named Tom Belize, who was a professor down at Mankato. And uh, he came, he was the visiting artist who came in and Tom and I painted sets together, a set together that he had designed. And when he found out I was in the Twin Cities, um, a graduate from Mankato who was directing, Sally Childs, and he, she asked him if he knew any designers because she had started a company called Lyric Theater. And he said, yes, my friend Eric had just moved there. So she got hold of me and, um, I started designing for her at the Hennepin Center for the Arts for a lot of shows. And um, we then kind of became, we kind of, we, we did, we then went to uh, Plainview where we opened the John Hassler Theater. And it was kind of once I started in designing um, at, at the Hennepin Center, I don't know what my next contact was, but somehow word got around and people started asking me to work for them. I think the sta- stages might have been one of the first people. I think, yeah, Steve Barberia was running Stages Theater Company and he had heard about me from somebody and I interviewed with him. And then I ended up doing a lot of shows for them. And I just, it's just been basically word of mouth. And which then that's that's how that happened and then so I've you know I've I've taught at three different universities Purdue and um, Iowa State and the University of Maine and um, so that has been kind of a side jaunt sometimes and and there will be other theaters out of town that will ask me to design but but it's just that networking that's just how it begins and you just start fostering relationships and um people have a need. And I guess if you work cheaply enough, <laughs> you'll be asked by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, anyway, so, so that's kind of how that started. You um, <laughs> made this, it seems like you kind of made a 
drastic move even in in your career just like from doing film things to more theater related things but you started in theater so like how yes how was that because that those it seems like those are two like fairly different you know art forms yes they are now when you move to los when you go to los angeles there's not a ton of theater there. Now, I did work in San Diego at the Old Globe, and I've worked in, like, San Francisco at the ACT, and um, Theater 40 in Beverly Hills, is, uh, I, I worked there, but there really is not much theater. The money is not there. You're basically expected to kind of give it away. So... Um, TV and film. I think the the first thing I did in LA with film was a docu, kind of a documentary. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, it was about uh, advocating smoking or something. And and so my first designing, I had to design, for example, a restaurant. And I thought, oh great, I'm going to have these hanging plants all over. That would be lovely. Well, the LD came in, the lighting designer would come in and say, oh, we got to move that plant because I can't see, you know, can't put uh, light on the actors. And then and then the uh, director of photography came and he said, you know, I got to get rid of that plant because I need a direct line pretty soon. Everything was kind of whittled away, whittled away. So that was my indoctrination. Uh (laughs) And everything, everything I Everything I did in film was an indoctrination, it seemed like. I was learning new things about what you can and can't do. And then when television happened, after I had worked, after I had been on a couple game shows, I started working in the game show business as a writer. But then also, you know, just just getting more involved. And then I became art director for a a couple game shows. And then, and then did this totally hidden video and that's it's just a whole different thing you go from theater where you can squint and stand 10 20 feet back and then if it looks good it's great to uh film which really zooms in you know and but you can manipulate it you could say please just do this part you know and and film this area and i'll make sure it's perfect and then television which is bigger and broader and you have and it happens like that and you have to be on the set for you know 12 hours a day and so it, it is very different from each the everything is very different from each other theater you establish relationships often kind of uh kind of in a more intense way because you have a longer period of time with people you go through a whole week with um uh, with rehearsals, if not more. And in TV and film, you're on the set 5.30, getting everything ready. They shoot it and it's gone. You know, it's, it's so it's less personal, less satisfying. You don't get to hear audiences clap. Um, although I did have a, made a professor who lived for the applause before when this curtain went up. He wanted people to applaud his set. And I always like to say that I don't think my set should come to life until an actor steps foot on it. And I still believe that. So that's my philosophy. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious more about like your, your career now. Um, you know, like you talked about sort of, <laughs> well, I mean, during really COVID right for, <laughs> like this minute, no, um, you know, cause you, you've been, you've been around for a while, you know, um, yeah. obviously you're, mm-hmm. you're, 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 you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, uh, 
you know, what before COVID um, and also mm-hmm. hopefully after COVID, you know, what are kind of your, where are you oh, at? Okay. And also like, where are you kind of hoping to continue to grow and to go. go with? Yeah. Good question. Good question. So, so before this, as COVID was coming down, it was in February, uh, right? I think it's February, March. And I had, um, I had a schedule. I have a, um, a calendar. I still use, I like paper calendars because I can visually see things and they look like this. So it was every day there were like one or two meetings. I had, I had literally six shows lined up between February and, and June. And I was not sure how I was going to get them all done. Now our mutual friend, Abby Wormbo has 10 shows and she, she still does it. But, um, but it's, it's like, you know, I, I was, it's kind of like a, a snowball rolling downhill, which we'll get to see pretty soon if the weather keeps up, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's just gets it. You know, you'll get it done. You're not sure how you don't sleep well at night, but um, it is still invigorating. And it's like being in LA where, where you just, you have so much going on and you're never stopping to breathe and think and enjoy life. So gradually, as when COVID came down, everything started dropping off, except for I had a, a, a show that I'd already designed. It's already been drawn up for Florida State in Tallahassee. I was to go down there in October. And we're going to do um, Midsummer Night's Dream. And, and uh, so that one was already by the time COVID hit, ready for October. And now, of course, it, and then it was pushed to the spring of next year. And just recently, no, it's not happening. It's not happening at all. So um, then I had those other shows that were all lined up and gradually one by one, everyone is saying, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. So the one that was remaining, that was the, what, that was a sure uh, bet was, um, well, it wasn't a sure bet, but it was Medora, the Medora musical. And, um, we didn't know what was going to happen. I I'm involved in the writing process of the, I'm kind of the part of that team. Um, and we weren't sure if it would happen at all. If so, when it would happen, we had varying reports. Uh, North Dakotans are pretty stalwart folks, as you know, and don't feel they can be touched by anything. So they, we, they said, well, we'll move it down. We'll move it to, uh, a week later than normal opening. <clears throat> so it was, but they had to they cut the budget. So as you know, we usually have a crew of like eight people uh, or maybe six, six of the scene shop, six to eight. Uh, so it got whittled down to three of us and um, we did go out there and we were all COVID tested every single week um the cast and crew the cast was put into this uh into the campground where they all had their own cabins um and we were put into the another other facility the elkhorn and and we um we wore masks the cast and crew wore masks in this big rehearsal hall and waited till the nth hour basically to start touching each other even though they were sequestered in the campground and they, we didn't even, they didn't even go to the bars. They didn't work for the foundation while they were there. They, everybody decided to be real serious about this. So 
um, we opened to initially we could only have 750 people and the theater holds 20, 2800, 2900. Do you remember? 2900. I should know this, shouldn't I? And so, so, um, we had like, you know, the full house with 700 and some people sitting apart from each other. The cast was separated from the audience. There was nobody coming up on stage and they were separated by about 12 feet. They lasted the whole summer. They perform every single night and nobody got COVID and you knock on wood. Nobody and hardly anybody in the audience was wearing a mask except for the Medora musical crew, the sound man, the lighting people, people in the booth, uh, everybody working for the foundation wore masks, but nobody in the audience did. And I think their biggest audience was maybe 1,200. Things started opening up and they allowed 1,200 to come in. So although it was not a money maker, it was a huge success because nobody thought it could be done. Now, who knows the ramifications of that? I don't know. But... I think uh, everybody, um, we're all now wondering what's going to happen and assuming that at least the Medora musical will go on and any outdoor theater can go on. I mean, I think that's uh, just, I I, I don't know. There's a, people are going through massive depressions right now, but I, I, for me, when I realized what was happening and I could just concentrate on the musical, it was like, oh my gosh, this is great. I only have one show to worry about. And I suddenly realized I could do things during the summer. I can actually plant a garden. I can do things I haven't I've put off. Like I put off welding and now I'm doing some welding. It's great. Love it. <laughs> and, and, you know, learning my CAD program. I never had time to, I'm the old school with the pencils and stuff. And so I've been self-taught and um, I have more time to self-teach now. So, so, <laughs> so it's, you know, you just, but you start re- thinking, okay, I have to reinvent myself, but I'm not willing to give up on theater. Um, everything I'm doing, I'm hoping will kind of make me more, uh, yeah, um, I not accessible, more uh, versed, I guess, in different skill sets. And, you know, maybe it's the end of my career. I have no idea. I'm not planning on it. <laughs> I plan on, you know, just keeling over in the scene shop one day, but I, <laughs> but, uh, but I, um, I think we have to, I think we have to have hope. And when, when theater comes back, it could be that many people have given up and have just couldn't take it and have left to other careers, which means there'll be a lot of work for those who have stayed around. So, <laughs> but, but one thing I do think particularly about technicians, yeah, also about actors, but particularly about technicians is that our skill sets are pretty high. I think we are, we can do so many things, painting, building, welding, um, the management issues, stage management that, that makes you a CEO in some places. I think you can, I think that there are many things you can do and, um, we just can't let creativity be crushed no matter what, no matter what you're doing. I think that's an important aspect. Yeah. It seems so. like you particularly as a, as an artist and as a human are, so willing and able to be adaptable to whatever sort of comes your way. Um, And the world has changed so much, you know, since 
you know, the last 50, 60 years, like everything. Oh, yeah. All the time. Oh, yeah. And there's this depression issue that I hear about often, and and it's hard not to be. I mean, it's hard not to get down in the mouth about our current state of affairs, whether it's political or or our jobs. Um, but you know, we've weathered. The human race has weathered better than this. We, I mean, we've we're able to. And as an artist, as as we all are in the theater. As an artist, we seek to find the beauty or the interest in life. And what's the alternative? It's a, There's no alternative that's acceptable to me, except to try and make yourself as happy as you can and the people around you and look for a better future and start now. Start cleaning up like I should, clean up my messy office. But, um, you know, it's, it's uh, be ready for the comeback. And if you find yourself uh, like our music director this summer, um, he started into painting, Bob Ross painting. And his his father used to paint for uh, Bob Ross paint kind of style and had a bunch of old oils. And um, he said he gave them to Travis and said, you know, you should do something with this. So, you know, he's been doing this now and just churning out painting after painting. I'm the proud owner of one of them. And so he's discovered another passion, which he can just implement what he's, you know, when he's not doing his music, it kind of will implement what he, what he um, knows how to do, make him more valuable. Yeah. So that's very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, uh, I did want to ask, um, you know, just as we're, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, potentially sending young students who are uh, getting into this field for the first time, you know, learning more about what it is to be getting into the arts as a set designer and, and what that could look like. What, um, what might you, I mean, either what would you tell a student who maybe is getting into set design or maybe what would you have told your younger self about getting into set and design? <laughs> Um, I think hmm, to learn all about it, not just sitting at the, uh, in front of some paper and drawing or drafting to get in there and know how things are done, know how to hammer something, know how to construct, because I, I think a lot of young people coming out of theater don't necessarily have those skills. And I, I, I'm fond of saying I, I don't like to ask somebody to do something that I don't know or am not willing to do. For example, if there's a tall ladder, if I'm asking somebody to go up there, I better be um, I I better be uh, uh, willing to do it myself. You know, I just it's like one reason I'm welding is that I've done a little bit here and there, smattering, but I've always wanted to do more because well, it looks like fun. But it is hard work. It's uh, being under that mask is sweaty and dirty. And and I want to be able to say, oh, that's a great, you did a great weld. That is a great weld there. Or give them advice. So as a uh, as somebody going into this, um, I, I have a sister who's a producer of print work in Chicago. And their business has ramped up again. So she's actually right now she's in DC filming some uh, on a commercial shoot. And I think that, and, and so there's work that's happening, you know, it could be 
dressing a set or making a set or set uh, um, decoration, for example, for a commercial. And you can do that. You can do a ton of things. But as a designer, learn how to paint. You don't have to be skilled, absolutely skilled at everything, but you should know the basics. And know what and and that I'm very fortunate. I feel I'm very fortunate that I started as an actress because that's hard work too, in a whole different way. But if you haven't started there, uh, one thing I really um, sometimes get up in arms about is the the them and us and them, like the techies versus the actors. What is that about? This is a collaborative art. We're trying to make a big picture here. And I have no time for that, for people who have that kind of attitude. I mean, it's just, and I, it's conversely, I suppose, the same way actors might think of techies as you know go get my go get my my water or something but you know it's just a, it's just it's just ridiculous it's ridiculous so i'd say be malleable i'd be willing to jump in and do things you never thought you'd do um search for the unusual uh projects um i i was production designer for the haunted basement and uh at the soap factory for a couple of years it's just so much fun and it was out of my comfort zone I don't like being scared and and I was working with a lot of artists who knew nothing about theater but were making environments down in the haunted basement and um, it was a very rich experience and I really had a great time so you know it's just uh, if you have your go into something with your eyes open and uh, willing you'll have you uh, such a wealth of knowledge and and don't worry about being the best in anything at the you know when you're young in particular and going through this because you uh, one of my design mentors I have an, I have three design mentors one just died his name's Jim Bacham and he was a production designer of like the what is a mystery theater or something something that was done here in the Twin Cities a, te a television show he also was production designer for Sweetland the music the the movie um and he came to the University of, of, of Washington when I was a student there and was there for a semester teaching from garbage to grandeur, where he was the prop man at the Guthrie for many years. And he would take, he would take things, just trash, and turn them into these beautiful works of art. And sometimes, at that point, we didn't know that aniline dye was dangerous. We didn't have gloves that we used. We didn't have masks was not a great thing, oh but, God. but he, you know, he just, he just jumped in with both feet. And when I was getting that negative, um, feedback from my male professors at the university there about being a set designer, he, he came and showed me the kindness that I, as a woman needed. He gave me the encouragement that I needed. He just said, you go for it, you go for it. And he, you know, so, so, um, he was one and uh, of those people. And Ralph Funicello, who uh, is a West Coast designer and was Ming Cho Lee's assistant for many years when he went to Yale. Um, he also, I mean, he's this, the hum most humble guy ever. And, uh, but he just, he just learned by doing, and he would jump in and paint with me when we were working. And, um, you know, he could sit back and say, well, my assistants are gonna do that. And there are designers who do that, mind you, but no, I don't think that's, I don't think you should. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. yeah.
So, oh, the other thing that was uh, shut down is I was also, I'm also, I was, I was, I'm hopefully still am the head scenic, uh, scenic artist for the opera. So we had just, we were going to open um, uh, the Ballad of Edward Tulane, which was great piece huge and we had loaded up the truck on that Thursday night to take it down to the Ordway to load in and and the following week is when we're going to open um uh, designer um Walt Spangler who is one of the top-notch designer from New York um was was in Ted just got into town and we got a call that night after the truck was loaded that we weren't going to do it and so it's all been put into storage and they're looking at 2021 in November I think opening it but but so I still am working as a scenic artist when I'm not working and concurrently when I'm working as a designer so you just got to be willing to do it yeah yeah (laughs) you know you know well you know exactly (laughs) I know you know (laughs) so do you uh um you know as you continue in your career you know post-covid you know for what it sounds like you're you want to you're going to continue to do this until you die in a scene chapel. So you said it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <true>. <laughs> but, um, what are you like? What, um, you know, what goals do you have for the rest of, you know, for your career? You know, what are you, what are you looking for? Good Is it continuing question. to just be happy? You know? you, you know, I, I hope that I would like to feel that I've mentored some people and I, I have a couple of, young friends who I uh, who have called me their mentor and I really appreciate it but I my my feeling is that there is enough work for everybody in this business um and that if you're good and you work hard and you're willing you will always have work you know it might not be exactly what you want or your dream job but there is work for everyone and um I would I would like to pass on my oh, my fever for the industry to somebody else or to other to other people, and I hope I can do that. Um, I don't have uh, there is nothing necessarily that I feel like I have to accomplish at this point. Um, you know, I've been a I produced a, uh, a little mini film once, and I decided no, nah, I don't really like that. I've stage managed, and that's fun to a point, but. You know, well, you know, (laughs) it's hard. It's hard. You're the cog in the wheel. And, uh, and um, I kind of like being able to put something up that people enjoy, particularly that the actors enjoy working on. I like to please the actors and the director, you know, and, and if the audience doesn't get it, well, maybe they don't, but, but if I've pleased that set, I'm happy. And um, I like to be able to say, you know, goodbye well, after their after, after a successful opening and hopefully see it once or twice again and um it's like raising kids you have to be able to be willing to kind of push them out of the nest and say we'll see you in a little while <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah i i don't know what my goals are actually i i do have a couple of projects i'm doing some sculpting right now uh, in conjunction with uh, welding and I want to start this little business and we'll see if it takes off. I don't know. I don't know. So if that happens, you know, I want to be able, I'll have something to fill in the times that when before theater ramps back up. Yeah. 
So exciting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's sort of all my questions, but um, was there anything else that you wanted to share? Anything that you wanted to talk about uh, that you didn't get to yet? Oh, I'm trying to think. Um, I know that uh, Tech Tools, which I think is a fabulous organization, and the two people responsible, Laura Wilhelm and um, uh, Wu Chen Ku, are two of my favorite people in this world. They, you know, they worked really hard to do something that nobody had done. And one thing that was they were in process of doing was having a transparency uh, about our um, fee about what we get as artists in the industry and between women and men, the discrepancy. And the unfortunate thing is I, I still feel, or I'm not sure about this, but I still feel that there is that difference between what a guy gets and what a girl gets or a or woman gets. Um, when I did this, when I first started this, um, uh, art directing this, t the, um, totally hidden video my predecessor was this good friend he was a delightful man and um he he, he i came after when he left and they asked me to, to fill in um i found out that they paid me half what they paid him and at that point you know back in the in the 80s mid 80s late 80s it was like um Oh, I was getting, I don't know, about 1500 a week, which isn't great in today's standards, but then it was huge. And he was getting 2700 I think, per week. And yeah. it was just one of those things I thought, you know, I didn't fault him. There's no reason to fault him for that. I was glad he was getting what he had gotten. His wife is still, I think, the head um, uh, a designer or she runs the design team at an NBC and she was making more than he was even. So, um, it's, it's interesting. I don't know how we correct that. Um, maybe it's just attrition. So after a while, there's just gonna be so many women in the industry that, <laughs> you know, it's, I, there's room for everybody. Like I said, I love the men in the industry and, um, I've always enjoyed the scene shops that I've been in, but, but I think there has to be a little bit of a, um, I, sometimes my, I scratch my head wondering well, why, why, because I'm doing at least what they're doing, if not a little more, just kind of prove myself. But yeah, you know. I know so. uh, recently there was a, another one of, there was, um, you know, a survey of sorts that went out um, sort of in conjunction with tech tools um, that was uh, regarding wage transparency and you know it included both men and women and also um, included things like uh, you know if people wanted to identify like racially and, and what that might yeah. look like and um, I don't know where it is right now but I, I'm, I imagine that they're still gathering uh, information, the information. Think, um, but I just thought you know, whenever we come back from COVID, uh, yeah, that'd be something yeah. interesting to look at. Well, and and also in the LGBT community, there it's there are inequities all over, and yeah. um, you know, I have a, a, a at least a couple trans friends who are finding that it's difficult to break in, and um, un, unless it's with a specific company, and it just shouldn't be that way. I think we should all it should all be based on merit and the ability to work hard and you know, it's, I, I just think you do, I think you do have to pay your dues to some extent in terms of, 
take a if you want to learn about scenic art and you're not a scenic artist then take a job as a pot boy or you know working under somebody and just if you have the financial wherewithal to do that uh, be an apprentice to somebody I think that's the fastest way to learn and um, there are a lot of there are a lot of people out there who would love to take you under wing. Jimmy Bauckham took me under wing and I got what's his TD for one of the last uh, theater shows that he did. And I didn't know that I could be his TD. You know, he all these old timers from the Guthrie were involved, the director, the lighting designer. And I, I didn't know, but he pushed me and he said, I'll help you through, you know, and he yeah. did. So that's yeah. how you learn. Yeah. And, you know. And yeah. I love that you're yeah. you're excited and willing and want to pass that down to other people that, as you said, you want to be a mentor as well. That's that's very encouraging, yeah. I think, for especially students to hear that, you know, there are people out there who would love to have you to teach you to oh, share what they know. Sure. Yeah. Well, and and in keeping with that. So at the at the opera, they have a wonderful program, this youth opera that happens um, and it happens that they, they start. They have kids in, in um, elementary school and uh, middle school and junior high, and high school who they put on an opera after I think it's like uh, six months of work. Um, and they, the tech tools just recently, the last two years started this mentorship program. So there are anywhere from two to four to six high school kids who came to the opera and they would paint with me. They would weld with the welders. They would work as carpenters. And I was the mentor the first year this happened. The second year it happened, uh, Merritt Rodriguez did that. And she would take them around and, you know, work with us in the shop too. And they got to figure out all aspects. They worked, you know, with the lighting designer and it was a great way, and all of those kids really—they said that they really got a lot out of it. And um, so there are opportunities like that. Um, I, the opera is the only one I know at the moment that does that kind of thing. I think the Guthrie should. It's hard because you have to put aside a certain amount of time, and sometimes it's a busy schedule in a professional scene shop. So uh, these were all after hours, basically, or this or Saturdays and Sundays, so that the scene the shop wasn't in. Full swing, but but yeah, so yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Yeah, um, well, um, unless you'd like to share anything else, um, I'm so grateful that you took the time to sit down with me. Oh, of it's course, so cool to hear your story. Uh, of course, <laughs> thank you, Rachel. Well, I've I've enjoyed it, and uh, you know how much I enjoy you too. So, <laughs> yeah, you'll have to do a podcast and interview yourself. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of We Shadows. If you enjoyed it, please recommend it to your friends, colleagues, and students. If you loved it, like us on Facebook, and please hit the follow or subscribe button on your chosen podcast platform. We Shadows was created by Liesa Behrens, Rachel Lanto, and Anita Kelling. It was recorded over Zencaster and produced by Anita Kelling. Our theme music was composed and performed by J. William Kelsch. Special thanks go out to the wonderful folks at Technicians for Change. We Shadows can be found wherever you search for your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in this week, and be sure to check us out every Wednesday for new episodes.